Welcome back to another episode of Agile Way podcast, where we explore challenges organizations face on their Agile journey. How to become great Scrum Master, how to change your leadership style, or how to embrace agility at the organization level. I'm Suzy Shukova, Agile coach, certified Scrum trainer, and author of the great Scrum Master book and Agile leader book, and I'm your host for this podcast. I'm passionate about business agility, organizational culture, and Agile leadership, and that was the reason why I decided to start this podcast, to share with you my experiences and stories from my Agile journey. second series of this podcast focuses on business agility and it's sponsored by Emergence Journal. Let me welcome here Esther Derby, one of the most influential voices within the Agile communities when it comes to developing organizations, coaching teams and transforming management. Esther is an author of several books. The latest is called Seven Rules for Positive Productive Change, Micro Shifts, Macro Results. And my first question for today is, what is the number one lesson you learned yourself about agility? Well, first, thank you for having me. Um, it's, it's lovely to be here with you. Uh, what did I learn about agility? The most important lesson. Um, it's really hard to pick one. Uh, so one, that, one thing that I run up against a lot in organizations is that they... Um, they want the benefits of agile methods through repeatable reliable delivery ability to adjust quickly to change and all those things but they don't actually change the things in their organization that have kept them from being that way so they add some of the external forms the processes the meetings that kind of thing about agility and uh and they leave all the things in place that have kept them locked down. So that's often where I start working. I don't actually start working trying to get people to do Scrum or to get people to um, do certain, you know, other things. I start looking at what's got the system locked down that we can change, we can loosen up so that there's a chance that they can actually begin to be responsive. Can you share maybe some example of those type of things, uh, something you've been dealing with in organizations? Well, a common one is that the way projects are funded kind of locks things in. You know, another one is that um, People have many projects going at the same time, which kind of locks them into a certain pattern of results. Um, so sometimes it's the way they're dealing with projects. Sometimes it is the way they are dealing with teams. You know, they are very invested in having a, a sort of matrix organization. And so they find it difficult to actually have teams working consistently on one thing. So it varies from place to place. But I find that if you don't, if you don't look at those things that are preventing something from, from 
else from emerging, then nothing else will emerge. They'll think, as you said, they lock them, right? They are preventing them yeah. from change. So uh, how you start? You have that locked environment and how you start unlocking it? You know, I, I, I try to understand what those kind of the factors are that are keeping things in place. And then ideally I work on one that's gonna have a broad impact, but often there's not a lot of appetite for that, you know, because those are big changes and they seem hard. And it's like, well, that's not, you know, that's not scrum. It's like, uh, or that's not agile. That's not about agile. So I, I find something that people are willing to work on, you know, something that, small sometimes that people are willing to work on and make a change about. Um, and, and in many cases, these organizational factors are, are, are really difficult to change. Like one organization I worked with, um, their job descriptions were all very narrow and very focused on, on deepening skills in a particular specialty, which makes it hard to be agile, right? That gets in the way because um, people are very focused on, I'm going to build my expertise. I'm going to um, work on things that are gonna get me promoted to the next level so I can make a better salary. Um, they are not motivated to learn near neighbor skills, which tends to make them more flexible and makes teams more flexible and then makes the company more adaptive. Um, so anyway, this organization had these job descriptions and it would have taken the approval of 17 vice presidents to change any one of them and probably an act of God. So what we did in that case was we left those job descriptions in place. We just contextualized them for the, the groups that were trying to work in a more agile way. So when the managers in that group talked to people about um, career path, or they talk to people about um, promotion, or they talk about people about what we're looking for when we're going to be doing ratings, which I think are a bad idea, but many companies still do them. Um, they talked about, you know, okay, this is what your job description says. And this is how we're going to be interpreting that and applying that in this context. So yes, learning more about this skill but also learning about how to use this skill in conjunction with other people who have a different set of skills. You know, learning how this skill relates to, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, learning to help other people maybe learn some of the, you know, the aspects of your skills so that they can begin to have more T-shaped skills. So, you know, instead of just doing all the testing yourself, pairing with a developer to do testing so that the developers begin to learn something about that because that will help, help people develop those skills that enable more adaptability. So that was one thing we did at one company because there were a lot of other things that were hard to unlock. And people were super straightforward about it. It's like, you know, when it gets to, when it gets to promotion time or when it gets to review time, people are going to revert back to this, you know, very siloed way of working unless we are very consistent in our messaging about it. 
sometimes uh, working with the HR is uh, very interesting because uh, you really need to change uh, the entire thing, like the positions, how you work with people, how you motivate them, and uh, performance reviews and all that stuff. And yeah, some, sometimes those, you know, sometimes uh, I have found that people in HR have very creative ways to think about that. And sometimes they are very willing to, um, you know, try some experiments. But I mean, you ran the HR for your company, didn't you? Yes, I did. That's true. Yeah, I like so, it as I'm working with HR people because that's sort of uh, people-centric. Yeah, yeah, it can be. It isn't in every company, but um, that's right. Yeah, so it was interesting. Like the, in another company I worked in, the HR folks were they were real clear about the issues with so in that company with stack ranking, they were real clear about the issues with that. And they were not in favor of it, but they said our executive demands it. And they didn't have enough organizational clout to say, you may believe in it, but it's actually detrimental to our to our company. It's actually detrimental in a lot of ways. But they didn't feel like they had a place at the table to or enough, you know, enough um, organizational clout to educate or push back or anything else about that. So yeah, that was a sad story. And now when you go to this organization and it happens to me time to time as well, right? You go there and you say like, they are not ready for taking that step or anything. So where do you find your internal motivation? Like go try and get a game and go into another organizations and. Well, every change starts from where you are. You know, people may say, oh, we want to go agile. You know, we want agility here, and but they don't leap. You know, an organization cannot leap there. They have to start from where they are. And so I look for, you know, what's the tiniest thing we can do that's not going to seem like, you know, overwhelming or, or it's going to, you know, activate some reaction or uh you know it's it's some small thing that we can move to the like the next best thing like not the best thing not the most wonderful thing but it's just a little better than what we're doing now you know and that's you know that's a little puzzle in and of itself to figure out what what is the next best thing we can do and how can we get people interested in working on that and how will we tell when we've you know gotten a little tiny bit better because that's how it happens. It doesn't happen in a leap. It doesn't happen when you just, you know, slap on some processes and ceremonies on top of what you've got, right? You, just, you know, you kind of edge it along. So it takes a different kind of patience. It takes a different kind of patience, I think. That so takes patience. a lot of patience, I would say. <laughs> um, you know, I find, I find that, um, uh, over the years, I have gotten a lot more patient about certain things and a lot less patient about other things. That's right. I was just going to say that I'm more patient with certain things. Uh, but as you said, the other half, uh, that's true as well for me. There are certain things where I just say I don't even go for it now. And I feel like that's not for me. And yeah, no, I'm not, not willing to do that again or over or any more or at all. 
choose your own battles, right? Yeah, exactly. and, uh, yeah that's true. So one of those battles is very often uh, the finance and those like this hard project, fixed project and budgeting yeah. and that type of thing. So do you have any, any good recommendation for this type of environment? Well, you know, when I was a dev manager, we were working under those constraints. And we were also by sort of by default, it was everything was considered a waterfall project, you know, you did the requirements, and then you, you know, you designed the whole thing, and then you built the whole thing, and then you tested the whole thing, and then everything went to hell because, you know, you figured out everything you'd missed. So even under those constraints, though, I, you know, I was, I did some forms of incremental development. So yeah, we had requirements, but then we'd start developing things and we'd learn about all of the things we didn't quite understand or we missed or emerged because people were thinking about it in a different way. So that's what I would do if people were under those, the, that type of constraint. I would just, you know, do what I could, find a way to, to um, you know, we'll design this little part and we'll get it working, we'll get some feedback. And, you know, that actually worked reasonably well. And because of, you know, we had this fixed constraint, we had to be aware of the, of the spend on the project, but we were also delivering stuff. You know, or, we, or at least we had it ready to release. We couldn't actually put it into production. Um, but, you know, we had it ready and we were pretty sure that it was, it was solid because it had already been tested and checked out. And, and so we were able to work with those constraints um, that way. Um, I suppose that some people would argue that there were some capex and opex issues with what we did, but uh, nobody bugged me about them. Yeah, you're right. I was lucky enough, so we just make it work iteration by iteration. And because it was working, no one was really complaining about our different way of working. It just happened to us and uh, the rest yeah. shifted afterwards, right? But uh, maybe some organizations are not that lucky. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we didn't, we didn't, uh, we, we just called it development. We didn't say, oh, we're going into test. We just said, you're doing development and testing is part of development. Yeah. That so, makes sense, right? Sometimes maybe not using those big names uh, will help because you're just yeah. doing the change on the background and yeah. that might help as well. So you just wrote a book, or just brought some time ago, you wrote a book, Seven Rules for Positive Productive Change. I so did. can you tell us more about that book? Like, um, what is the bottom line? <laughs> uh I think you don't have to drive change if you work on change by attraction. So the premise of this book is that, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily go into a change saying there's going to be this huge change, you know, we're going on a big change program and we're going to um, you know, transform everything. It's you, you know, you, you work in small ways and you, uh, you do the next best thing and you keep doing the next best thing and you understand what's holding the pattern in place and you work on those things and you don't tell people what they've been doing is stupid, bad and wrong. You, you know, you just work with what worked. 
right? So it's the, I mean, the subtitle of the book is Micro Shifts and Macro Results, which is you work in these small ways. It doesn't freak people out. It doesn't create, you know, the, the, the backlash of, of fear or the people who are going to be losing out, feeling like they have to try to stop things to preserve whatever there it is they're interested in preserving and you can get a lot of a lot done when you work that way because people aren't freaked out and they don't feel a huge sense of loss and yeah that wasn't exactly the crisp bottom line you were probably hoping for it's like i, I guess the crisp bottom line is you don't have to push prod or punish people to achieve change you can work by attraction and I think that makes very much sense, right? Sometimes I feel that with this agile industry, with all those frameworks and big methods and transformations, we do exact opposite. So if you look into the agile community nowadays, you've been in agile community from the very early beginning, right? So how it changes and what, what do you see happening right now? What are the good things you see happening in agile space and what are the things that you're not that happy about? If you can share some of your like, uh, perspective on this. Well, I think we are at, in some ways, a very predictable place. I mean, it's been 20 years. And, um, you know, there have been a whole series of, you know, structures and institutions and businesses that have grown up around Agile. You know, we have this alliance and that alliance and this framework and that framework and, you know, people uh, selling training to help you pass certifications and, you know, all this other stuff. So all of this stuff has grown up and it's very predictable. Right? That's very predictable. It's something that happens with every innovation over time or most innovations over time. And, you know, we don't have any more early adopters. You know, we don't, you know, this, this is, you know, the people who are like super interested in innovation and super interested in trying something new and ready to take some risks. Um, you know, we're 20 years in. And the people who are saying, I want an agile transformation now have very different motivations than the people who wanted to start trying to work this way 20 years ago. And I think we have to respect what those motivations are. We may not, they may not be our motivations. They may not be, might be what motivated us or, you know, the companies that we started working with years ago, um, but they are what they are. And we have to, we have to kind of deal with that. And we have to deal with the fact that, um, you know, the people who are, who are attempting agile transformations now are interested in, in, you know, making sure that things are legitimate and making sure that uh, things aren't going to cause huge disruption. You know, and I can't blame them for that. But it's a, it's a, it's just a different motivation, and I think you have to approach things in a different way. So, what can help this uh, agile community? Because I think. Uh... On the one way, this community is very passionate and uh, people are willing to collaborate with each other yeah. and help each other. I always go find a support, whatever I need, they always help me. But on the other hand, uh, they're like arguing about some tiny differences or big things, however you want to call it. So 
what could bring this community together more closely maybe or uh, make it up and visit higher energy i sometimes feel like we are losing the energy we're losing the momentum yeah yeah i mean well, i think that's i think that's uh again i think that's in some ways predictable 20 years in um so i think you know the next wave you know we continue to work with the people who are 20 years in now interested in agile we continue to work with them in a respectful way acknowledging where they're at and helping them you know achieve what they hope to achieve uh but we also look at what the next wave is what is the next wave of enthusiasm uh and in the context of you know creating more humane workplaces which is something i care deeply about and in the context of um, improving or providing people with the technical skills to actually deliver in an incremental and iterative way, because it does require specific technical skills. I'm interested in seeing how we can focus on reviving interest in, in technical skills as a core part of being able to achieve this adapt responsiveness and adaptability that people hope for with Agile or some people hope for with Agile. And I think we need to look at the structures that surround the development teams that create the environment for development teams. And that means management. So if we can, if we can come up with some in, ed, you know, I learned this term from uh, Matthew Carlson, administrative uh, innovation, which is what Agile would be classified as. If we can come up with some way to um, engage people in those things that are part of the surrounding system that actually support that kind of adaptability maybe we could get somewhere we could uh, develop some new enthusiasm and maybe it's not those two things maybe it's something different i always like to have three options so what would a third thing be you know but anyway you know develop you know come up with something new you know what, and not just another flavor, mm. or not just a framework. Mm. There is a lot of another flavors, but uh, not enough innovations, I would say, in our space. Yeah. And uh, this uh, whole technical skills are needed, and we try to repackage them from like extreme programming, right? I was here at the beginning. Now we say we should come back to, for example, Scrum never-ending conversations, right? And uh, I still don't see it like when I go to organizations with technical teams and I speak about it, the developers say, yeah, that would be nice. And the managers say, yeah, no. <laughs> so I feel it still starts at the leadership level, like really change the management paradigms maybe and completely rephrase the way how organizations are structured. And that's something myself, uh, I really care about. But I, again, I am not sure if that's not just a dead end street and if we should not focus somewhere else completely. Some of my colleagues are saying innovations, right? That's the future. Well, the thing about innovations is you can't really predict when they're gonna happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're a confluence of influence, just like Agile was the confluence of influences, you know, I mean, there were people doing stuff that kind of looked like Agile software development in the 60s. 
but they didn't have the same development environments. They didn't have the same, you know, ability to, uh, you know, rapidly test and change code. I mean, when I when I first started doing any programming, we were dealing with card decks that you would, you know, <laughs> submit overnight. <laughs> you would get the results in the morning. I mean, it's really difficult to do rapid iteration. Very flexible tool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Agile itself was a confluence of factors. It was, you know, certain ways of thinking. It was certain um, languages. It was certain development environments that just kind of all came together in this interesting way. So it's hard to predict what, what the innovation will be. So speaking of the future, right? Now we are 20 years in it. So in your mind, where do you see Agile in 20 years from now? Well, I think it will be less of a thing. It'll just be the way things, we, the way we do things. That would be great, actually, if uh, that will happen. Or at least the surface aspects of it will be there. You know, I'm not sure the responsive, adaptive aspects of it will be there because most organizations are not built to be responsive and adaptive. So it gets back to the structure thing that you just mentioned. You know, and it gets back to how do we make small changes that aren't going to just cause a general freak out that will enable organizations to be a little more a little more adaptable a little more responsive um, what are the you know what are the structural changes the administration administrative changes the systemic changes we can make that will allow that to happen yeah, I like that. How do we do small changes which will not make organizations to freak out? And maybe that's all we have to do. Yeah, well. Small steps? Yes. Yeah, little tiny changes. They don't freak people out. Big changes often do. And big changes are often the result of the accumulations of many tiny little changes. So. So your book is published for some time. Are you working on a new one? Um, I'm working on the second edition of Agile Retrospectives. That's um, the most popular book ever, I think. Everybody yeah. is getting it recommended and everybody reading it. I started with it as well. So uh, that's really good. Good to hear. What's, what's well, new on the second edition then? Yeah, well, and Diane is involved and we have a, a third author, David Horowitz. And, you know, when I look back at the first edition, because, you know, I had not looked at it in very closely for a number of years, you know, it, it does need a refresh because the, you know, the world has changed since we wrote that book. But, you know, when we wrote it, the, the assumption was that teams had to be co-located and that's not the world we live in anymore. And, you know, there's a lot more research about the neuroscience of how groups work. Um, facilitation practices that had been, you know, around for a while, but now there's research to back some of that stuff up. There's just a lot of things that have changed in the world. And so it really is time to update the book. Speaking of those virtual teams not being collocated anymore, so what is your tip for uh, building this uh, team spirit for virtual teams? My experience having built some virtual teams is that you have to create a space for people to get to know each other as people. 
and not in a, you know, not like a totally artificial, oh, we're going to all reveal things about ourselves kind of way, but just, a, you know, a, 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 some channel where people can talk about not just the work, but what interests them. And not in a forced way, but just so that can evolve and is sanctioned. Uh, because that is what, that's where the camaraderie develops, that's where the connections develop that enable people to have the kind of conflicts they need to have, but also have ground to land on when they do have those conflicts. So that's what I have found works, is creating that space. And sometimes it's just an IM channel where it's okay to chit chat, because the, from that casual conversation that's you know where people find out common interests and they find out you know stuff about people that allows connection so i think that's one of the biggest challenges of remote spaces because in some ways we have to be you know much more structured which can force out that time where people begin to get to know each other and, and develop some camaraderie what have you what have you found works I found it works when they really see each other on a regular basis and not just have a one sharp meeting and then another meeting and another meeting, but where they just have this chat on a regular like a virtual space where they all connect. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, it's not a meeting anymore. It's just right. uh, some sort of a conversation and they might have a headset when they're walking to the coffee machine and talk to each other if needed or being completely quiet depending on their needs, but that's also very tough. I also so, learned that uh, for the teams who only shifted now with that whole pandemic situation, they rarely do that. So a few years ago, I worked with um, a company where they had offices in Europe and the Middle East and the, the East Coast of the US and the West Coast of the US. And that there were a bunch of coaches whose job it was to try to you know, bring change in this organization, mm. but they were spread across these offices. And the only time they were together was in this one meeting where um, I did not run this meeting, but it was uh, the way the meeting was set up. It was supposed to be a sort of round robin, but the first person who had a kind of semi-interesting topic, it was like, boom, everyone would glom onto that topic. And then it would, you know, turn into a big discussion about whatever that was, whether it was important or not. Um, and the other people never, you know, their turn never came. But that was the only time people got to meet. So there was no real, um, there was no real place for them to have those conversations. And I set up a back channel. And everybody, you know, signed on with their, um, I don't know if they use their personal IDs or not, but, um, you know that was the place where we had those conversations and that's that was the place where people um eventually started you know knowing each other as people and sharing insights and sharing support and and building those relationships that allowed them to function more effectively but it wasn't in those formal meetings it was in this you know it was in this uh this back channel, which was called the Coconut Telegraph. Someone named it the Coconut Telegraph. Um, and, you know, at, at one point, one of the managers found out and was quite upset. 
because they are losing, they are spending their time on something completely irrelevant to their opinion. No, I, I think part of it was, well, you know, that's not business. Well, it, it actually is. It is really about creating the the social unit that will allow these people to function as a team. And I think part of it was, well, I'm not included. It's like, well, that's right. You're not because you're the manager. And if you were there, you would be giving people directions and telling people what to do rather than them finding their own way. So yeah, he was, he was a little upset with me. It's okay, we got over it. Yeah, I think it's also about how those managers shows up at those type of back channels, right? I have a feeling that a lot of organizations are now creating this relationship depth and uh, they just, uh, go on based on the history, but I think it will catch them very soon. Well, that's interesting. A friend of mine, Jenny Tarwater, told me about a, a retrospective where the CEO said, thought that he should he could be included because you know no one will worry about me being there. I'm a cool boss. And so she said, okay, close your eyes, we're gonna vote. And no one felt comfortable with him there. Right. So, and he was a good guy. You know, he was, he was, you know, he wasn't in many ways, not a typical, a typical hierarchical guy, but it was still, there's still a power difference and it still plays out. But yeah, I think creating a barrier between levels is also not helpful. Well, maybe there need to be both communication among the levels, sure. but also ways out them. <laughs> just needs to be flowing. For example. Yeah. Well, I think it's always interesting to look at how managers feel like they should be able to attend or drop in on any um, developers meeting. But the reverse is not true. Right? It's like, you know, can a developer just, you know, sit in in a management meeting to provide their perspective? Hell no. I mean, it tells, it tells you there's still a power dynamic at play. Right? So I think, you know, it's legitimate for managers to have discussions about their concerns on their own. It's legitimate for developers and coaches to have discussions about their concerns on their own. And I think it's, it's, it's healthy, but yeah, you don't want to create an entire gap. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. Yeah. Communication needs to go there and back and there and back, but there needs to be the secret places where you just have a, some sort of a safety. You know. I mean, this is true for every, you know, this is true for all humans, you know, in all, all sorts of groups. Mm -hmm. Families need to be able to have their conversations, you know, without the outside world hearing. Teenagers need to be able to have their conversations without their parents there. You know, it's, it's just a, it's a, and maybe that's what we need to learn in this all virtual world, like how to have those secret conversations and how to have them open, transparent, and all those different aspects of our communication. If there is one thing, one wish you have for uh, us as a society, community, agile community, maybe I focus it, what it would be? I think we should focus on creating, or I hope we will focus on creating environments where people can do great work and focus less on the external forms of, you know, you must have these titles and these meetings and 
Let's just focus on creating environments where people can do great work. Thank you very much. And we reach the end of this wonderful conversation. It was a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. Thank you for joining. In a summary, we need to start looking at things that are preventing things to start emerging. Like how do you work with projects? Or how do you fund them? Or how do you structure the teams? We need to find something small people can start working on. Every change starts from where you are. So what's the tiniest thing we can do? Not to be perfect, but just be a little bit better. Change doesn't have to be big. Just keep doing the next best thing, micro thing, and the result will come. You can change by attraction. One of the hot topics for today world is how to build well-functioning environment, how to build great teams. And for that, building this people aspect, relationships, matters a lot. The most important job of the managers is to creating a social unit that would allow people to function as a team. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Agile Way podcast hosted by Zuzi Shekhova, author of the Great Scrum Master book and Agile Leader book. If you love listening to this podcast, please leave us a review. If there is any topic you are particularly interested in and would like to hear another episode on it, let me know. For more information about me and my Agile classes, visit our website sochova.com S-O-C-H-O-V-A dot com Thank you for listening. Thank you.